take as our subject that little word, why. And if you know somebody besides yourself who has a lot of whys and a lot of puzzling uncertainties, I cannot answer all the questions, but maybe we can get better acquainted with the one who not only has, but is the answer. I want to read from Mark 10. The incident related here is found also in Matthew 19 and Luke 18 with slight variations. But in Mark 10, beginning with verse 28, right after the rich young ruler had walked away and made the great refusal, then Peter began to say unto him, to the Lord, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now, in this time. That's what I want you to notice. We don't ordinarily think of that area of our reward. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. All that. And in the world to come, eternal life. All this and heaven too. It has been said that Peter is the most American of all the disciples. Practically everything he said in the Gospels was a mistake. Let us build three tabernacles. This shall not be unto thee. Thou shalt never wash my feet. I will never deny you. No wonder the book says, and Peter said, not knowing what he said. <laughs> but it was right after this rich young ruler walked away, I think all of this runs here in sequence, that uh, Peter said, Now, Lord, we haven't acted like that. We've left everything. <laughs> few old nets and a boat, in his case, I don't believe it, I mentioned it. But we've left everything, what do we get? And our Lord answered with a, this marvelous statement that avoids two extremes that are very popular today in religious and even evangelical thinking. Some of the brethren today are preaching a gospel of prosperity. To hear them, you'd think God wants everybody to be a millionaire. It's pretty hard to find that in the New Testament. With the Savior who had nowhere to lay his head, straight and narrow way, strangers and pilgrims, exiles and aliens, not many rich, wise, mighty, noble. And where Paul said, we are the scum of the earth and the spectacle to the world for the scandal of the cross, the three S's. And I don't see much prosperity in that. But neither is it the gospel of adversity, as though all Christians are supposed to go around guarding gunny sack. We are not sanctified tramps with no reward this side of heaven. Our Lord made it plain there are some compensations to a Christian here and now. It's not pie in the sky. All this, and heaven too, 
Now, I know there's the fellowship of his sufferings, and that's one of those terms that we've heard all our lives. And if I went through the crowd tonight with pad and pencil and ask you to put down what you think that means, I'd have some interesting reading. If I had any from some sources, when it came back, what, what, what have we been meaning, if anything, about this fellowship of his sufferings? Well, of course it doesn't mean that we had any uh, part in the uh, atoning death of our Lord. He took care of that once and for all by himself. But if we are truly his disciples, we are heirs to a legacy of persecution and reproach. Peter says, partakers of Christ's sufferings. Paul says, we fill up what is behind of the sufferings of Christ. The most interesting phrase and uh, limitless in its applications. The average church member hasn't the slightest idea what that means. And I have observed so often that perfectly blank expression. They think it means ordinary trouble, you know, but it doesn't. Everybody has trouble. Some dear souls, every time they have a headache, they think they're bearing their cross. You can kill that with an aspirin tablet. <laughs> it's the trouble that you get into that you wouldn't get into if you weren't a Christian. Now, how much suffering have we endured and how much persecution and all the rest of it, because of our identification with Jesus Christ. But if this is not a gospel that majors on prosperity or adversity, you know the old saying that prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament and adversity is the blessing of the New. Don't forget that it was spoken to a certain group of people who had forsaken all to follow the Lord Jesus. And I think it's sometimes forgotten that there are certain passages of Scripture no use for some people to read because it's not meant for them anyhow and they don't know what it's all about. Colossians 3 begins with an if. It's not for everybody what follows after Colossians 3, 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. Now this is for you. Nobody else can take it in. Sometimes they can't either. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for ye are dead. This is for dead people. And your life is hid with Christ in God. The, the dead living, who have died with Christ and risen with him to walk in newness of life, and all the rest, chapter 3, chapter 4, it's all for those folks. In Luke 14, 26, our Lord had a crowd, and if any of us preachers had a crowd, we'd get all excited and uh, maybe tone down the demands a little bit, you know, but not our Lord. And there went great multitudes with him, and I can almost see him hold up his hand as if to say, now hold everything, this looks good, and I'm at a peak of popularity, but... He gave them three cannots in a row. Now, what sort of psychology is that? That's no way to go at a crowd. That's negative. And this is a day of the power of positive thinking. You don't want to start right off telling folks you can't be a disciple anyhow, unless that raises certain barriers and certain conditions and certain restrictions. If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, in his own life also... He cannot be my disciple. That's cannot number one. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Number two. And then uh, he tells two little parables. 
illustrations. And have you observed that the Holy Spirit throws into both of them a very significant little phrase that I've never heard anybody call anybody's attention to. I'm sure it's been done, but I haven't heard it. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first? Now, this is no time for snap judgment in certain decisions. You ought to know what you're doing. Sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily, after it's laid the foundation and is not able to finish it all, that behold, it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Then the second illustration, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first? Now, he didn't get in a great big hurry and take off for the battlefield, whether he had enough troops or enough equipment or not. He sat down first. I think our Lord wanted people to know what they were doing before they took off after him because he wasn't on a sanctified hayride. And he wanted them to know. What king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand or else while the others yet a great way off he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace so likewise cannot number three whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath he cannot be my disciple. Now what he says here in the passage we started out with is for those folks for nobody else. A.T. Robertson uh, says it is the language of exaggerated contrast, but don't water it down, he said, until you lose the point. And I know the convenient way in which all of us preachers explain this hating business, hating father and mother and so on. And uh, there's truth in it that we are to love Jesus so much that all other loves are uh, relatively as hatred in comparison. And that sounds good. But I think sometimes we tone it down so much until it loses its sharp edge and its terrific challenge. Sometimes it does mean the actual loss of friends, position, finances, family, and it always calls for the loss of everything, either actual or attitudinal. It has to be one or the other. Now, uh, sometimes God takes away everything one has, as he did with Job. Job lost the whole business. Had nothing left but himself sitting there scraping his sores with a potsherd, and his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? Now, that's, that's being reduced to the lowest common denominator, if I know anything about it. But again, uh, God gave him back twice as much as he ever had. Don't forget that. But Paul didn't have anything at all except stocks and bonds. <laughs> stocks for his feet and bonds for his wrists. <laughs> waiting to have his head chopped off by an executioner. Friend, he said, I've suffered the loss of all things. Now, it was actual with him, but he said it's not always actual, but turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 29, 31. It must be attitudinal if it's not actual. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives, now here we get back to this hating wife and so on again. They that have wives be as though, all the way through this passage, it's as though, as though, as though. Not actual, but as though. Of course, it's all right to have a wife. They that weep, it's all right to weep. As though they wept not. 
They that rejoice, it's all right to rejoice, but as though they rejoice not. It's all right to buy, but as though they possess not. And there's a sense in which it's all right to use this world, but not using it to the full, for the fashion of this world passeth away. You either part with it lock, stock, and barrel visibly and actually, or in your heart you must be as though you did not have it. And that's what poor in spirit means, for one thing. And I get under conviction when I think about this. I watch Sunday morning crowds in church sing so uh, cheerfully and sometimes so utterly unaware of what they're singing to the old rugged cross I'll ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Some of them have never even started bearing it any kind of way, let alone gladly. And some don't have the slightest idea in this wide world what it's all about. Neither in actuality or in attitude have they gone to him without the camp bearing his reproach. They've never suffered the loss of all things. And as far as those dear hearts are concerned, they might as well be singing Mary had a little lamb. Means nothing. Now, Peter was right. They had really left everything for Christ's sake in the Gospels. And he said that just after they'd had a demonstration of a young fellow who wouldn't. And the contrast was so sharp, I think, that keen-eyed old Simon Peter saw it immediately. And those disciples around him knew what it meant. They had given up everything. Maybe they didn't have much, but they'd given up everything for Christ in the gospel. And they lived in danger of persecution and prison and death, despised and scorned and pilgrims through an unfriendly world. And yet Jesus said, you'll have in this world. Now, what do you mean by that? They'd just given up everything. You'll have in this world fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and lands and goods. Now, in what sense do we have that here? Well, they found out that while they lost this world, they gained a new one right in this one. And in the fellowship of the church, they had found in that first church a new family in the Lord. They met in homes. They had love feasts together. They found new fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Hadn't Jesus said, whosoever shall do the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother? That's what it means. Didn't Paul say in Romans 16, 13, greet Rufus, his mother and mine? Well, she wasn't Paul's mother, actually, and yet she was, in this sense, Paul's mother. I found a new family. I don't have any much anymore. I don't have any living wife, not down here, children, not a home. I've got an apartment. I'm like old Dr. R.G. Lee, when I start back from any place, I don't tell anybody I'm going home. It takes at least two to make a home. I tell them I'm going to Greensboro. And I have only one brother left in my family, and he's 85 almost. And he's a cripple, and he can't get out of that little old house on top of the hill. I'm going down there for homecoming day in a few Sundays, and we're going to try to get him out to church some kind of way. But I called up there the other night, and I thought maybe he'd gone to bed and I called to his daughter, and I said, well, I thought I'd call you. Maybe Irvin's gone to bed. She said, oh, no, he's the last one. said, I peeped in on him the other night, and he was in the back room on his knees, and how he got on his knees, I don't know. But he had his Bible and his prayer list out. I didn't know about that. That's the first I've heard of that. 
And you know sometimes when the going's been pretty rough, I've felt that some, uh, from somewhere I got a shot of spiritual adrenaline. And I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't when that old crippled brother got on his knees in that back room and said, Now, Lord, his friends have come to him in their journey and he has nothing to set before him. I'm calling to beg for some bread for vans. And I have felt that as well as the prayers of countless people everywhere. I'm having the time of my life. I'm the biggest family now I've ever been in, and that's the saints of the Lord. And I'll tell you, they're precious to me. I've got mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters in the faith all over this land and elsewhere. And that, it's been that way all my life. I started out rather young, and as a youngster, I was in uh, a number of dear homes where they made me one of the family. I remember one in South Carolina. They just sort of took me in as one of the family and another in North Carolina where I stayed sometimes far beyond any sensible time for anybody to stay. Didn't have sense enough to leave. Was enjoying it so well. But I was a member of the family of God. And that's what they were and I was having the time. And then you say, what about that lands? Though you don't have any property. Well, I got 10 acres. But uh, that's not what this means. I am a guest in a lot of homes where they do have land and a nice house and I'm just as welcome as I can be. And it's all going to belong to the saints anyhow. The Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. Somebody said that's the only way they'd ever get it. Well, we're going to get it. (laughs) It's not coming around yet. You have observed that. But it's coming. I heard of a fellow a little off on prophecy who put a, up a sort of a display, a mini-millennium. He's going to have uh, little replicas of all the things that are going to happen in the millennium. So he had a lot over here. He's going to have a lion and a lamb in it. Now he got hold of a lion somehow, don't ask me, and he got hold of a lamb, and a few weeks later somebody asked the old caretaker, how's the millennium coming along? He said, we're doing very well. He said, how about the lion and the lamb? We said, we're having a little trouble there said, uh, the lion's doing all right, but we have to throw in a fresh lamb every morning. <laughs> now that's the reason, you see, it hasn't come yet, friend. And if we try to rush it, we'll be throwing in lambs every morning too, my friend. But one of these days, the meek are going to inherit the earth, bless God. Sometimes in my walks, I run into some elegant place with a sign, keep out. Don't walk on the grass and so on. Well, that's all right. I know what they mean, but sometimes I have a little fun. I say, well, one of these days, the Lord's going to take it all over. And I hope he gives me the job of pulling up all the keep out signs. (laughs) And we're going to have a bonfire because it's going to belong to the saints of the Lord. Why, two weeks ago, I never got such a stack of letters from dear friends in the Chicago and Winona Lake area in my life. It was only exceeded by the dear people that wrote to me when Sarah went to glory. Now that's my brothers and my sisters and my family. That's my family in the Lord. And we ought to be happier about it. You're right, dear brother. We ought to have a great time. Having nothing and possessing all things. That's our condition. You can have nothing and everything both at the same time. Did you know that? Don't try to figure it out. Just thank God for it. (laughs) 
Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things. Well, poor old Paul, I'm sorry, but he said, all things are mine or yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come. The whole business is yours and except you and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, you don't need a computer to figure that out, my friend. It all belongs to him and you belong to him and he belongs to God. And that puts us in a great succession. Now, I believe that. I like the way they sang the other day, Jesus is all the world to me. They didn't sing it that way. They sang it, Jesus is everything to me. Because all the world, I don't know, it always did not quite say it for me. But Jesus is everything to me. Now, the early church was a happy family, the most wonderful fellowship this world's ever known. Oh, I know they ran into problems. I know that they tried communal living a little bit, and today we still have these religious communities who take some things too literally. But you ask any sinner who has just come out of this world into the fellowship of the saints, and he's ready to sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain and cleansed by the blood, joint heirs with Jesus. As we travel the sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. And he'll go on to say, you'll notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these folks are senior. When one has a heartache, we'll share the tears and rejoice in each victory. And his family is dear. When I was growing up in the country, the preachers always stayed at our house. Had preaching the fourth Sunday of every month, just one sermon a month. Some of them are long enough to last a month. Just one sermon a month. The preacher always stayed at our house, and he never called my mother Mrs. Havner. He said, Sister Havner. And my daddy was Brother Havner. And uh, that, that's pretty good practice, I think. I belong to the First Baptist Church of Greensboro, and we haven't had but two pastors in 63 years till this one came. They last a pretty good while. And you one said, I feel like I'm starting a life sentence. Yeah. <laughs> we had Dr. Clyde Turner for 38 years, and he said, when this church started a little over 100 years ago, its pastor was hissed and laughed at, and the members were scorned. But they're not scorned now. Huh? Magnificent buildings and some wonderful people, too. But I say things have changed. And I wonder sometimes what we are going to do to get back what we had. Uh, you see it in revivals. You see it in brand new churches. You see it in some new movements. Christians love each other. They're drawn together by persecution. They know how to sing, blessed be the tie that binds. I feel sorry for a brand new Christian when he joins some churches. I remember in Richmond, a fellow joined on Sunday morning, and he didn't miss a night. He didn't know any better than to go to church every night. Nobody had told him that you'd get over it. <laughs> and I'd see him sitting back there, and I'd say under my breath, Lord, don't let him catch on. <laughs> I hope the vision doesn't fade after he's met some deacons. But Ephesus leaves its first love, and Laodicea becomes rich and increased with goods, and Balaam gets into Pergamum, and Jezebel gets into Thyatira, and Sardis has a name to be alive, it's dead, and we've lost that blessed fellowship. We've become poor, rich churches uh, like Laodicea instead of rich, poor churches like Smyrna. 
The average church is so filled with unconverted members, they're worldlings, captives in Babylon, trying to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. We've borrowed the world's methods and the world's machinery and the world's motives and even the world's music. We've lost that simple faith, that pilgrim character, and that blessed hope. We've forgotten that we're a bunch of exiles and aliens. Down in Florida last winter, a group of children from a children's home came one night to sing. Bright youngsters, and how they could sing. But I'll tell you, they sang that verse about from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king. Well, that was right down their line. No longer an outcast, a new song I sing from rags and the riches and the weak to the strong. I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God I belong. You know, I got a lump in my throat big as an apple. I just sat there. Uh, they knew what they were saying. They weren't orphans, of course, most of them. Their dads and mothers still living somewhere, but that's all the sadder. We need to recover that happy fellowship, and some churches have it, thank God. Oh, yes, I get in some that my soul is lifted up. I am not making a blanket charge tonight. And we try to carry it over with church suppers. It's a sort of a carryover, and sometimes they are love fees. Sometimes it gets into more like the Rotary Club and the PTA and the Country Club. I go from church to church, and I run into strife and divisions and contentions and petty squabbles. Oh, I know there aren't any perfect families, and there aren't any perfect churches. There's Corinth and Ephesus and Pergamon, Thyatira and Sardis, but that doesn't justify it. Don't forget there's also Smyrna and Philadelphia. And I run into some of them. And I believe, beloved, in the communion of the saints. Now, I don't know about the communication, either here or in the other world. I'm not interested in Ouija boards and ESP and all the rest trying to get in touch. But if you have somebody over there who's the other half of you, and just half of you's here, you get interested in communication, and certainly if you, we can't have that, there's a communion of the whole family of God. I wonder about it, you know. I say now, it used to be that no matter where I was, and I was lonely then at times traveling alone, but I could pick up a phone and call up Greensboro and hear a voice say, hello, honey. And now the lines are out and the operator doesn't answer. And I get to thinking, well, now let's see. I'm with Jesus and she's with Jesus. We're both with Jesus. He could talk to dead folks down here and bring them to life, and I know he's in touch with all of them over there. Could he relay something to her that I'd tell him? I don't know. You know, you think of all kinds of things. And if you haven't been there, you, you don't understand, but I appreciate your willing to put up with listening to it. I don't know how that is, and I'll let God work that out. But there is communion. And one reason why... We have uh, so little of uh, communication even and communion in our churches is because we've got too many church members who are not members of God's family. And they don't know what it's all about. And then others do have the relationship, but they don't have any fellowship. 
We're a new race. We're a nation within a nation, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar, that is, a purchased people. The Jews were God's chosen people. You can't assimilate Jews. They never have been assimilated, never will be, because they're a peculiar people in their own right by the choice of God. Christians are a purchased people. The word there means to make a ring around. When God saved you, he made a ring around you and claimed you for his very own. You were never meant to be assimilated in this world. Our Lord made it plain in John 17. We've been saved out of this world. We're still in the world. We're not of the world. But we've been saved out of the world to go right back into the world to win others out of the world. And that's the only business we've got in the world. Now, if you ever get located on that, you'll know where you are. <laughs> we don't belong here, beloved. We're not pilgrims of earth trying to get to heaven. We belong to heaven. We're citizens of heaven trying to get through this world. My dear wife loved good music and the choicest and best of music, but her favorite was that little song that you hear the quartet sing. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. Well, she got through, and the rest of us are on our way, and if you what you ought to be, it won't be your home. We're just pilgrims. I was up at Hampton, Virginia, at Hampton Institute, that great black college, preaching to between four and 500 black preachers two, two spring times ago. I tell you, I had the time of my life. I preached so I lost one of my cufflinks, never did find it. And the last night that great congregation sang as only our black friends can sing. Farther along we'll know all about it. And they sang about 20 verses. They just kept on singing them over. And I would not care if they'd have sung 50. And I sat there and patted my foot and just bawled. I didn't cry. I bawled. They're going somewhere. We're not tramps. We know where we're going. And, he, and my Lord said, I'm with you. I will be with you. Everybody prays at church, Lord, be with us in this meeting. I haven't prayed that prayer in 25 years. He, he is with us. Why ask him to come when he's already there? But I suppose they mean make us aware, make us conscious of thy presence. But, oh, if only at church we could really believe for once that he's there, that he's here tonight. I wonder when we'd ever get out of this place tonight. Evan Roberts, who was so mightily used of God in the Welsh Revival, he got to the place where the people began to look too much to Evan Roberts, and that worried him because he knew that would never work. And one night there was a great crowd waiting, and he was late. And when he came in, they, they were not waiting for the Lord to start something. They were waiting for him to start something. So he came out and said, Do you believe that where two or three are gathered, the Lord is there? Amen. Do you believe he's here tonight? Hallelujah. Well, he said, Then you don't need me. Put on his coat and hat and left. I don't blame him. That was a dramatic way of driving home the fact that what you need's already here. He's here. Now, either he is or he isn't. And if it's just a pretty phrase to roll under our tongues, we might as well close up shop and join the infidels. If it's not true, nothing matters. But if it is true, nothing else matters. And we ought to start believing it or take down our sign. I grew up close to a Baptist church and a Methodist church. They used to get happy about going to heaven. 
got excited. My grandmother, she got happy and shouted all week in the Baptist church, and she was tuned up good for the Methodists. The next week, she went over there and shouted all the way through that one. I used to sit there in that little old country church, my feet dangling off from the bench, and we had one dear sister in there could march up and down the aisles with her eyes shut and never run into a bench. I don't know what kind of radar she had, but I tell you, she got over that place, and she was happy about going to heaven. Now, you can't tell me with some of your learned phrases that that's just mere emotionalism. I know those dear farmer folks. They had their whys and their worries and their burdens, and they'd come there of a morning, and you couldn't have got them to make a speech for love and their money. But when they got right before God, they lost those inhibitions and went around shaking hands with each other all over the church and thanking God that they were saved. Now, it takes something from heaven to make you act like that. Of course, I haven't seen that lately, you understand. Any kind of a church. No wonder some folks don't go. I heard of a pastor and met one of his delinquent members and said, I've never, haven't seen you lately, church. No, he said, you know, it's been, the children been sick and it's rained and rained and rained. Well, he said, it's always dry, church. Yeah, he said, that's another reason I haven't been gone. <laughs> well, it oughtn't to be that way. We ought to be happy. After all, we're dealing with divine electricity and something ought to happen in every service. Everybody ought to get a charge or a shock, one or the two. <laughs> if you get what God's got for you, you'll go out charged. You know, you may go out mad, but anything's better than nothing. <laughs> I was here several, oh, a number of summers ago. Maybe some of you can remember it. And over in the dining room after the week was in it was the last breakfast i believe we called on the cook to come out and sing us a song i forget even her name but she knew the lord and she came out there and stood and just sang precious lord hold my hand and i started looking around and the baptists were fishing for their handkerchiefs and the presbyterians were hunting for theirs why, it just leaped over all the denominational barriers, got us down on level ground, loving each other. And I don't know, we'd preached all week and we hadn't seen anything like that happen. And here was the cook. Got us level where we could all have fellowship together. Now it says there'll be persecutions in this too, and that's what, we wonder about, and that doesn't mean just criticism, just mere opposition. It means, as I've said, any trouble that you get into because you're a Christian. But if we can get back to what they had then, then we would understand that God didn't save us to make beggars out of us. He became poor that we might be rich. You're in a sight better shape than you think you are here tonight. My father's rich in the houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Though exiled from home, yet still I can sing. Oh, glory to God. I'm a child of the king. All this in heaven too. And in the world to come eternal life. Now, if you're born again, washed in the blood and filled with the Spirit and in love with Jesus and his people and you're traveling with your fellow pilgrims, then you ought to be happy 
And you certainly ought to belong to that crowd that can yell like a Comanche Indian at a football game and sit like a wooden Indian in church on Sunday morning. And so we swing today in the church from rigor mortis to St. Vitus. Did you, some of you old folks ever hear Billy Sunday describe the average midweek prayer meeting? You don't know what you missed. Wasn't surprised they called it the weekly prayer meeting. Because it was nearly dead. Say so you start 15 minutes late. And then the leader gets up and says, Will somebody play the piano, please? And after what seems about 10 minutes, some dear lady feels moved upon to play the piano. <laughs> Takes her about 10 minutes to get down to it. Another few minutes to twirl the piano stool up, and then a few more to twirl it back down. Then they all stand up and sing, throw out the lifeline. Said so they haven't got strength enough to put up a clothesline, the whole crowd. <laughs> and then the leader gets up and says, I'm sorry, friends, but I haven't had time to prepare anything. He said he didn't need to say that. You could have told that after he started. Then they all stand finally and sing, day is dying in the West. Billy said, that's not the only thing dying around that part of the country. Well, it took Billy Sunday to overpaint the picture to make us aware of it, but I tell you, my friends, it oughtn't to be like that. We've got something to be happy about. I know that there were errors in all the great awakenings. Anything that poor human flesh gets tangled up with, somebody's going to run wild with it. Even in the Welsh revival, there were some errors, and in the other great revivals. But by and large, oh, when revival hit England with the Wesleys, Somebody said when that came along, it was a strange time. The Puritans had all been buried, and the Methodists hadn't been born. Now, that would be a miserable time. And then John Wesley met, had a head-on collision with Jesus Christ. And something happened. And in the world to come. Over there in Hebrews, everybody gets to arguing about eternal security. In that chapter that has a phrase in it, I wish we could quit arguing once in a while and enjoy that phrase, speaks of those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, friend, have you ever done that? That means you can have a little of heaven before you get there. The trees, they hang over the wall, and you can pluck a little of the fruit before you get there. That's what Fanny Crosby went. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Glory divine. You ought to be enjoying some of it now. I was out in Midland, Texas, in that great church there, and and Dr. O'Brien was teaching Job, and I was trying to preach, and one night I talked along this line, and we started back in his car, and he didn't say a word, and I didn't say a word forever so far. Then he took off on that verse of we're marching design, and I, many times, as I've heard it, it hadn't really dawned on me what that verse meant. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven. You don't have to go through a graveyard to get to it. And if you think somebody died before his time, no, no, anybody in the will of God never dies before their time. 
God lets some things happen and he makes some things happen, but nothing ever happens to those who are in the will of God. I have in Greensboro had a dear friend who was head of the drama department of the University of Chicago across the street from where I live. For 70 odd years he was a sinner. Harvard man, versed in literature, and his wife prayed for 45 years that he'd be a Christian. Then one night, he got saved. And I said, how did it happen? We became buddies, if you can imagine that man running around with this country preacher, and yet we'd go out every week and eat somewhere and just talk, 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 after he got saved. I said, did you go to a revival? No. Did you hear a sermon? No. He said, God woke me up in the middle of the night and showed me what a lost old sinner I was. And then I asked him, did any preacher in all those years ever come to see you? No. Think of that. Did no Christian ever speak to you? No. No wonder God went to him personally. Nobody else would. <laughs> but he died the other day. He's 81. But that's not all of it, you know. It's not over. He's just been promoted. God's running another business somewhere else. His servants shall serve him there. I'm not going to heaven to loaf. I never have here. I don't want to sit on a cloud plucking a harp all through eternity. <laughs> I want to do something. And I thank God tonight, and if you know what I'm talking about, and I bless God, I know that you do. We thank God that in this world we have plenty. It's another kind of plenty, and the world doesn't understand it. But along with it, you have some persecution. All of that, and heaven too.